I absolutely think there's a faith guide and component in success in my life, but it's not about glorifying me, right? It's about the pieces can come together and you play, you're playing a role. I'm an important piece of this. I'm not the most important part, but I'm one of them. You know, it, it's really, I just believed it would work. Um, on a personal level, Sam, my mother was, was dying throughout this whole process. Actually, the day I interviewed for the job, I had done my second bone marrow transplant for her. She, she was fighting leukemia. Hey, everybody. This is Driven By, and I am Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear experiences, lessons, insights, and the drivers behind why my guests have built what they have built and how this applies to what drives you. It's great to have you listening to this show. For more episodes and more information, go to podcast.sampcoats.com or check out this podcast on every major platform app. My guest this week features Peter Abel. Peter is the CEO of Memphis Symphony Orchestra. A few years back, there were only 117 orchestras in the United States with annual budgets of $2.5 million and more. MSO currently has a budget of just over $4 million. I wanted to get Peter on the show because I've heard about how much transformation MSO has undergone over the last few years. Thankfully, he agreed to do so. I had a great time having this conversation, learning more about the deeper reasons that push you into your interests, how to transform a struggling nonprofit, the X factors that create significant impact, how a symphony drives the classical music experience within a city, how to step back and look at solving challenges differently, how to adjust when COVID-19 affects your entire organization, how to address your need for control, the feeling when you know it's going to be hard, but you feel like you can do it, and more. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now we're going to get back to the show. You went to University of Tennessee, right? You majored in psychology? Yeah, I did. I was there in the... uh... The glory years. (laughs) There were a lot of glory years. I was there from 1996 to 2000. So I only saw one loss, home football loss in my, to be truthful, I stayed for a fifth football season. (laughs) I stayed for the extra fall. They they just call it an extra football season. But yeah, really was a nice time to be up there. I love, I love the mountains and it was nice to get a little bit away for a little while. It's the only time I've not lived in Memphis in my whole life. Really? So was that T. Martin in 96? No, it was two, I had two years of Peyton Manning and then, then T. Martin. Two years okay. of T. Martin. And then that fifth year, I think, was freshman Casey Clawson. It was, uh, that team wasn't as good. Yeah, but, <laughs> that, was, that was your fifth year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How they recovered after I left, I don't know. They'll figure that out uh, somewhere yeah. else. So, and this is the third nonprofit 
that you've been affiliated with here in Memphis, correct? And this is the second one that you have been either executive director or CEO. Right on the executive director. This is the fifth, fifth nonprofit. I've worked for the Boy Scouts of America. I worked, that was right out of college from 2000 to 2003. I worked for the Boy Scouts of America. My last day was actually December 31st, 2003. In 2004, I started working for Youth Villages. I was there from 2004 to 2012. And I was the assistant director of the development, the fundraising area. And then I went straight into executive director of books from birth in 2012. And we actually merged. So we, we closed and merged with Porter Leith. And part of that deal, I, I became the vice president of development at Porter Leith. I stayed there for a year while we facilitated that merger. It took significantly longer than, than one may think to do that. It was an amicable merger. It was very very positive thing. And uh, the opportunity came open in the summer of 2017 here with the Memphis Symphony. So I've, I've been here uh, since. That's, I think that's five, five nonprofits. <laughs> 20 years of work in Memphis, 2020, my first job, right when I got out of college, and it's all been nonprofit. It's, it's really an interesting career path that no one intended to when they were my age, but now it's more of a field of study. In fact, the University of Memphis is starting a nonprofit degree specifically to train people for that field. What is it about nonprofit organizations that, to some degree, that you feel connected to or you feel interested in for you to spend 20 years and this be your fifth one? What do you think it is about nonprofits that you're attracted to? It's certainly nice to have the mission aspect. You know, the, one of the things we say in the nonprofit world is what they call a double bottom line. So you have to run a business. You're a private corporation when you're a nonprofit. That's a, it's a legal status as a private corporation. But you also balance that with mission, right? So it's, there are two things that are equally important. That's why they call it that. It's a double bottom line. I really enjoy that. I also enjoy the specific context of its governance in that I don't own it. I, I have a title of president and CEO. That's a puffed up title. It's an unnecessary title. Uh, but all that means is I'm the chief gatherer of people and thoughts and ideas. You know, you look at a business and you know, it, at the top, it's not like that. I'm maybe more in the middle and I'm surrounding myself with, with various things. And I, I really enjoy that. It's difficult in the sense that things don't happen always the way you anticipate because you have to be willing to open it up to the process. I have a boss that's a a board of directors. It's a wonderful model that's really unique to the United States where you as as a community leader, a business person can actually have a governance role in these nonprofits. And it's a big industry, Sam. It's 10% of the U.S. workforce work for a nonprofit of some kind. And keep in mind, churches qualify as nonprofits. So that's most, most people's associations are through faith-based. It was, it was always faith-based things and educational things that started uh, the nonprofit world. But now you have nonprofits that do everything from political rallying to arts and culture, like a museum or an orchestra, to some like youth development, things like the Boy Scouts. Something like youth villages is, of course, youth development, but it's actually work that used to have been done by a government or used to have been done, done by a church. And now it's done by an independent nonprofit that does the work for both, both things. So you see a lot of, of varying 
business structures. It, it's actually sometimes strange to put nonprofits in the same category because running Books from Birth and running the symphony are totally different, totally different entities and, and processes and things I think through. It'd be more like something like the YMCA, which is a nonprofit, the wonderful, one of the oldest, strongest, most trusted, contributive organizations in the United States. It's much more like a gym <laughs> from like a business analysis than it is a symphony. But so it's interesting to kind of to bunch us all together. But it, it, it is, uh, I've learned a lot. I've, because of this COVID situation, I've had a lot more time to sit down and reflect about what this 20 years has been about. You know, uh, do I want to continue? <laughs> who, who knows? Um, at some point, I guess it'd be, it'd be nice to try to go earn some money. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's been good. This city's been really good to me, and these programs have been good, been good to me. And I've, and I've certainly built a lot of strong friendships and strong memories in, the, in this time, for sure. When you talk about the double bottom line and the chief people gather, and you talk about the model reporting to the head of the board, et cetera. You talked about opening up to the process and there's almost kind of surrendering all the things that you're not in control of or things that occur or happen that, you know, you have to just react to. And I know that can play out in a lot of different ways. And I know that personally controls an illusion in a lot of ways, but, you know, I'm curious what specific shifts have you learned to make that were either difficult and or, you know, that you've come to appreciate when you started or after you started opening yourself up to the process, to this model or to the specific structure that you have at Memphis Symphony that you now appreciate? That's a great question because it's uh, it's still evolving. I have to remind myself of, of this kind of specific situation. I like control. You mentioned this illusory existence of control anyway, which is certainly certainly true. But what that means is a lot of times you can just get stuff done, right? You can you can hunker down, you can do it. In this model, especially having twenty five bosses, twenty five board members. It's a mindset and how I approach that scenario. Number one, I got to keep 25 people happy. I've got to be accountable to all these people. It seems overwhelming. That's one way to look at it. And if that's the way you look at it, you will burn out in this field. And it probably wasn't right for you. Like if, if that ownership, if you have a strong ownership drive, if your name needs to be on things, okay, <laughs> this isn't right for you. Because if you do this right, it, it's the other way. So I, I, I made an intentional shift about 10 years ago when I started to have more interaction and involvement with the board, which, by the way, painted a nice picture for how I could then become an executive director and I could see myself in that because that, that would have been necessary. And I see instead of 25 people overseeing me, I have 25 private personal business advisors who run great companies, have a lot of interest, they give, they're deeply concerned and care, and they're a phone call away at all times to help me deal with all these problems. When you think about it from that perspective, it's the best possible model you could ever have, especially when you're dealing with uh, complex problems. Look at what I do now. I, I am a representative of the largest band in Memphis, the Memphis Symphony Orchestra. We have 75 people in the band. 
So we can't perform, right? We can't gather people. You can't even have gatherings of 50 or more people in the city of Memphis. <laughs> we can't even get our band together, you know, safely and legally. So we, we have to completely reimagine what we are and what we do. If I were to try to do this by myself, I would have gone nuts a, a long time ago. And to have this sounding board and conversation, one of the very first things we did, for example, is created a little COVID task force. Everybody's got one the city, you know, but we have one for the symphony. It's all board members, a couple of musicians. And we're just, you know, how are we going to do this? Uh, and part of the things I've learned about getting older and, and managing larger and larger things is you don't lose this idea that you don't always know what to do. And it's, a, it's probably the, the most comforting thing you can do is be honest about that, share that with people. There's a thought that people lose confidence in you when you share you don't know what to do. That's not the case. People actually earn confidence by, by that kind of honesty and creating a, an environment where people can, can solve problems together. So long answer to your question, it's, it's, it was a mental shift. Am I accountable to this group or am I open to this group to help me grow? Because ultimately, the organization's success is my success and vice versa. How have you come to learn or what do you think the best way is to operate where you're respecting the board and their perspectives at times, you know, their desires or their wants, but then also your own personal thoughts about where the organization needs to move in conjunction with your team. It's easy, it seems, for there to be a lot of disconnect in either one of those different places. And it seems like you're very involved in a lot of communication. You have good relationships with your board. You know, I know your reputation with your staff as a leader. So how do you create alignment, you know, across the board? And then how do you kind of put your foot down or how do you make those decisions when they're not popular or not everybody approves with them? How do you still also not kind of be a yes man as well or yes woman? Well, you will be a yes man or yes woman <laughs> sometimes because that's the appropriate thing to do. I don't know. Uh, what do you say? No one to hold them, no one to fold them. <laughs> no one to, it, it's complicated, but I mean, this process of alignment is key. I mean, I have an idea of the way I think everything should go. If I was tasked to just do it myself, I would probably, I think I would do okay. That is not the model I'm operating in. So I coming to terms with the fact that that's not the best way to do it. You actually want something great to happen and you want everyone around that table to have felt a part of it. That's the end, right? And so you have to walk that back. What has to happen for that to, to really come true? And what you're doing is finding common ground with people. Things need to always take longer than you would otherwise plan because it needs to have the process. I'll give you a quick example. Although the plans were derailed a bit because of the COVID crisis, uh, one of the business challenges we identified at the symphony, okay, 50,000 foot view, and it's something you hear all the time. You just evaluate it. Why do these seemingly committed, qualified people keep failing in this job? And the reality was they were committed and qualified people. And I would, I would go to the same route if we didn't fix some of these business structures. And that was that we just didn't have the right mix of revenues. Uh, supporting our structure. And we started to look at best practices around the country, what the orchestras are doing well, what are they doing? 
and they all had a an endowment that provided a draw, a consistent draw of revenue to help offset the year-to-year fundraising need in your community. So you, you could always, a group like the Symphony, which is really a community cultural asset, can always pass the bucket every once in a while and say, we really need an extra gift to be able to survive. Okay, do that 10 times. <laughs> it's like the boy who cried wolf, right? So it's, uh, the community started to get sick of it. And that's, that's where the Memphis Symphony was when I came in. It was, everyone was kind of fed up. They knew it was necessary. And it, a lot of people don't even realize how necessary a symphony is to all arts. When you go see the ballet, that's the symphony in the pit playing. When you go see the opera, that's the symphony in the pit playing. When you have music teachers in schools, those are usually orchestra. So it, it kind of, it becomes like an ecosystem, like a center point of arts. And what the way we've started to realize is that our job is to actually bring musicians to Memphis. And that's mainly what we've done. The vast majority of our salaried players, about half the orchestras on salary, have come to Memphis to make it their home from somewhere else. They went to conservatories, they made it through a rigorous audition process, and now they've moved here and become Memphians, and they teach, and they play at Easter services, and they play at your wedding, and they play at your parents' funeral, and they make life good, and especially in a music-rich town like Memphis. Our job is to get them here. It's kind of like to be the glue that gets them here. So it's an essential piece. Like there'd be, if without an orchestra, there's no reason to have a school of music at the university. There's no reason to have an orchestra in high school. The whole thing would crumble. So it, it helps provide kind of the base of, of all that, that ecosystem that, that comes around. So when, once we started to make the case that it was essential, it needed to be here, we realized we had to fix this problem, this revenue problem. The Band-Aid solving, the passing the bucket, People were sick of it, and so we just got to really dig deep. And I just, I'm just grateful for this model that puts a lot of people around the table to help solve these problems. Uh, we, we had a board chair named Gail Rose. A lot of people in Memphis know Gail. She's an absolute pillar of the philanthropic and community, but also a business leader. She's a, she's a wonderful person. She led the charge on this. She got us in partnership with the University of Memphis. That's actually where I am right now. I'm doing this from campus at the University of Memphis. We're, we're housed here. We have an official partnership. That partnership not only builds ideas for the future, but saves us all the resources we used to spend on things like rent for our administrative offices are now able to be you know, put back into the heart. And then she led the charge with who laid a challenge grant out to the business leaders of this community. And in May of 2018, Sam, we were able to announce that we had met that challenge grant. And actually, it took a little longer than that. The bottom line is we not only met it, we expanded it. We raised $25 million. Wow. Uh, a few of it was just to help us survive in this period. But the rest is being uh, invested directly at the Community Foundation and at the University of Memphis Foundation. And it'll, it'll pay almost 20% of our expenses as we move forward. So we have now fixed that structure, okay? So in the process of, of identifying that, we, we had to build this case, and it started internally, right, with all these people. Why are we here? Why do we exist? Why is it important that we exist? And it, it's, it's just changed the way we see ourselves as an organization. If I were to do this by myself, 
none of that would have been worth it. I could have gotten some of it. Some of it could have gotten done. But it took that type of approach to be able to do great things. I probably went 100 different directions with your question. But no, no, no. it was fun to even tell that story and reflect on how much has happened in three years because it's a combination of luck Great altruism, great philanthropic investment by absolute pillars of this community, but also vision and involvement, volunteerism, great music, all these things that help will make sure that an organization like the Memphis Symphony will be of use to this community for generations to come. Yeah, there's a couple of things that you share that I'd love to kind of dive in on. So first, the things that we enjoy just as citizens in this city and the same for orchestras in other cities all around the country or world, the foundation of the arts and the music of that area is done by the symphony. And so when people have events or they have programs or any opportunity for citizens to enjoy traditional music, in the arts, they draw off of the symphony. And that's a high overhead to have all those musicians, to have the entire process available to the rest of the community to use on a per time basis. It's a very big undertaking. And what you're saying is it takes a lot for that to happen. And y'all make that happen. And when y'all do make it happen, it provides so much enjoyment and benefit to the society, to the community. And then secondly, what I felt like I heard you say is prior to you coming in and prior to your relationship with Gail, it was almost always this hurry or this anxiety to find money to fill the budget. And you never had enough runway to actually start to create the shift and the change within the organization. And once that big money was raised and then it through interest and, and through dividends or through the disbursements annually to like offset some of the budget, it gave you and the board and the team freedom to start doing the deeper things that are second order or third order that truly create a valuable organization that they were really unable to do because they were always just trying to catch up prior. I think the people that were here before me wanted this too. <laughs> they, they worked very hard. And it, I mean, I don't want to underplay the role of luck. Luck had a lot to do with this. I was just a little luckier in timing and all the conditions than, than they were. It, it wasn't anything I articulated better than someone else. In fact, the person who was here before me for about 10 years, they, they actually left in 2012. So there was a, a period of about five years of kind of revolving interims. And by the way, that highlights the value of consistent leadership. I'm sure people would say of, of high quality leadership. I'm not going to categorize myself that way, I will say that I'm consistent. <laughs> so you will see a connection between struggling entities, especially nonprofits, and inconsistency in their, in their leadership roles. So fix that first, right? Get the right people in there. I mean, that's Jim Collins, this whole thing, get the right people on the bus. And then you can solve these other issues. But, you know, a lot of it's bad timing. Symphonies, I mean, obviously, the symphony's not the world. In fact, most people don't care. <laughs> we know that. Only about 3% of people, they say, like classical music. But it really had a strong, vibrant, profitable existence from the 1950s until the mid to late 1980s. In fact, in 1987, when it was kind of the peak of the organization, 
they had 4,500 subscribers. And what that would mean is all the shows were sold out before the season started. Well, just imagine how easy a business that is to run. You, you don't even have to ma- run ads or you just have to mail them their tickets and say, see you at the concert. You can be really innovative with the programming. That that is totally shifted across the board. We're, we get you know sixty percent of the house sold with many, many fewer concerts. They used to do three every weekend. So it, you know it's really changed, but the art hasn't changed. Meaning the the level of precision it takes to be a professional musician. I, I say this because my father was a professional musician. He was in this orchestra. My grandfather was a professional musician. He was the first concert master of the Arkansas Symphony in Little Rock, and then he became the dean of music at the University of South Dakota, where he finished his life, lived lived in South Dakota. And Sam, I can't even tell you. I don't know. We never talked about music, so I don't know if if you, maybe you play the piano. But if you know anyone who is a musician, you have to practice so much. The quality that comes out on stage every single time these people sit down when I was playing video games, I quit. I played classical guitar. I quit when I was about 14. When I was playing video games, the kids who are now in orchestras were practicing. When I was shooting hoops in the backyard, they're practicing. <laughs> I mean, just this level of, of commitment and interest to be that good. I mean, you will rarely hear a mistake. Now, things will be different every time we perform live, but you very rarely hear mistakes it's just remarkable it's probably easier to be on the olympic team than it is to make an orchestra so i would say i was the benefit of of a lot of good luck and timing you know there was a really great attempt to do this in about 2004 2005 uh the the great group of board members if i named the the names you would people would know these people as just pillars of memphis they said let's fix this problem right and they built this plan got a lot of momentum and as, as you remember 2008 crisis just just knocked it out just really closed down that that whole plan they had actually had so much optimism that they had started building before raising the money and that's a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) i think i mean you have to take risks don't get me wrong you have to be making investment risks for your for your company to grow if you look at that way but it was, uh, it was just, like I said, it was, it was more bad timing than it was anything else because these were very talented people that were working on this. And then there was just a lot of residual loss from that over the years until finally really the bottom dropped out a couple of years before I came. People who follow these things know that it really did almost totally close. And it kind of hobbled along for a while. And then we just got this new chance by these philanthropists business leaders in Memphis. And, and my, my goal and my seat, Sam, is to not let them down. Let them know that that was a good choice. And I'll tell you what, right now we're being tested. We had big plans for next year. We, had, we were launching a, a growth of our season. We were, we were going to bring in some new musicians. We were going to do all kinds of wonderful things. And then this happens and you have to pivot very quickly. And we, we, made a, we made a decision early on in this. Our goal is to keep our relationships and our people as whole as possible. It's not going to be easy, and it's, we're not going to be able to keep everybody. But keep it as whole as possible while not giving up our chance for thriving out of this, meaning you don't want to lose your cash position. We have to balance this budget. So we somehow had to figure out how we were going to operate on about 60% our normal existence. 
and that that has been difficult, though we we see a path uh, forward. Gotcha. I'd like to you know get some clarity about that, but a couple things before. Uh, first off, I'll answer your question. I'm not a musician. I did buy a mandolin. There you go. You're a musician. This, this is not, is not classical music. But I, I did buy a mandolin. There's a mandolin concerto, Sam. The, the guy who does the uh, Chris Steely, he he plays he plays a mandolin concerto with an orchestra. Sign me up. You know, I loved Nickel Creek in high school, so then I bought a mandolin. But then uh, I just didn't realize how hard it was. But I mean, what you're saying is like they you know tried an 08, but then really what made this happen was you coming on after it sounded like some really dark times with the orchestra and then Gail's relationship with and then his large commitment kind of like jump-started this to actually happen. I don't know if you've ever met him. He's an amazing human being. He called, he called me here on my desk and he said, do you think you can do this? And I said, well, sir, I'll, I'll give it my best shot. And he, he had had a challenge grant that was about to end. He said, I'll give you a little more time. So we, were able to leverage that generosity of his position. He, he called a group together, held a dinner, got everybody excited. And, you know, I, I, one of the people at the table, I'm not going to mention any names, but they'd heard this, Sam, they'd heard the story before. They'd heard the story before, same story. What's going to be different this time? You know, there's a saying in business, honest people never ask for enough money. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's why a lot of good ideas, they just run out of money. They never were honest. I mean, they were honest, so they're, you know, they're thinking they're going to be able to hunker down and sacrifice. But the reality is you need to make sure you have enough money to do your, your venture. Um, that's why business, like restaurants go out of business. They just didn't have enough uh, runway of cash to be able to get the, the idea. It doesn't even matter how good the idea is. If you don't have the capital to do it, you can't do it. So that was ultimately the challenge. This fixes this problem. I've always said the whole time, Sam, that the challenge of our organization wasn't just capital. It was culture, too. It was, a, you know, maybe I like the, the, the culture and capital, the alliteration thing, but I always, and I believed it. We as an organization had given up the ability to solve our own problems. We had ceded our right to solve our own problems. We had said, we can't do it. Someone's got to save us. In fact, there was even a campaign called Save Our Symphony. And I, I look at that and I go, what, from what? <laughs> For whom? <laughs> like, they can't seem to save themselves. <laughs> like, what's going to be the good of that? That's a, it was just another way of saying, give us a lot more money. But you needed both those things worked on. And so I have, a, I have a, basically a partner in crime, and that's the conductor, the music director. We, we basically share leadership. He, he's the artistic leader, and I'm the business leader. And we, we just spent a few days talking through what are the important things to us. And, you know, it's everything about being positive, see the pot, you know, pot, we say, we say positively engage in the moment. We do things like when we have meetings with our staff, we walk over and we turn off the monitors on our computer screen. So we're not distracted. You have these powerful moments that in 2020, you really need to just connect with people. And it's the same thing in the lobby of a concert. When someone walks out of a concert, they're going to just pour out to you everything important that just happened in that wonderful experience we've been working on putting on. And you need to listen to what they're saying. <laughs> if you don't believe in that concept of positively engaging in the moment, you're, not gonna, you're right. never, never going to have any value to you. But the first thing, Sam, was the fact that we need to be seeing this opportunity that's around us, that we are in control of our future. 
not someone else. There's no one here to save us. We, can, we have to do it. See the opportunity and seize it. So that became our number one value. It seems like a weird value for an orchestra. <laughs> and when I shared it with the musicians, they were like, what is that about? I just had to share with them that, guys, how can we go thrive when we don't even believe in ourselves, right? That we can't even do this. So to have gone through that process is why we are going to make it out of the situation we're in now. Yeah. Because we can sit around the table in that group and we can say, how are we going to thrive out of this? How can we leverage each other, leverage all, you know, the musicians have a saying that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And this is the perfect time for that right um, rely on each other depend on each other and let's let's come out let's put a, a whole product out there that can thrive so when uh when called you and he asked you if you're going to be able to make this work what'd that feel like yeah just being honest i said it's gonna be very hard but i think we can do it and that's just like i said i, I absolutely think there's a faith guide and component in success in my life but it's not about glorifying me right it's about this is something that's worth doing. The pieces can come together and you play, you're playing a role in it. I'm an important piece in this, right? I'm not the most important part, but I'm one of them. You know, it, it's really, I just believed it would work. Um, on a personal level, Sam, my mother was, was dying throughout this whole process. Actually, the day I interviewed for the job, I, was, I had done my second bone marrow transplant for her. She, she was fighting leukemia. And she was a musician herself. She met my father at the School of Music at Northwestern University, and in their first year, they said, one of us has got to have a different career because <laughs> <laughs> we can't both be musicians. It would be just chaotic. So my dad stayed in music, and my mom became an educator. And, but she was, she was always a musician. She could play the piano and the organ and sing. And so she really understood the business, and she would always sit there. I'd go visit her at the hospital, and she would just share, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out, you know? And you want to go back and say, well, what, what would make you say that? Why? Why do you think it's going to work out? Because I don't see it's going to work out. And you just have to have that kind of belief. That, you know, start there. Start with the positive. I, I see a path that this is going to work. Things got a little simpler. It's interesting if any of the people who are on our board or who worked with me in that first year watch this, they will even tell you that I evolved a lot in that first year about trusting the other people that were there to help me about taking feedback, taking criticism and learning from it. It was a, it was a challenging, but something that has, has certainly changed me forever. Man, that's good stuff. You talked about the internal piece side of it. You talked about it with your team, engagement, solving your own problems. I know we haven't gotten to COVID yet, which we're going to get there, but from in a nonprofit space or through your own experiences, what have you learned that your people need the most to create as much engagement and buy-in as possible to actually where y'all can solve y'all's own problems? Like, what does that look like to you? And what does that look like to really try to build out uh, engagement internally to really navigate all these very challenging issues or seasons that come up, not when you just have growth plans, et cetera, but then when you're having to completely pivot and then protect so you can be ready for that in the future? Well, it, it, I think it all boils down to trust and it's trusting in that trust. So like I have a top level, you know, someone who's over all the fundraising and marketing, someone who's over the operations of the orchestra, someone who's over all the finance administration. And when I tell them you're in charge, <laughs> you get to, 
I really mean it. And a lot of times people will, they'll, they'll, you know, get text messages and Google meet messages and all these different things now, like, what should I do about this? And I, my answer is always for the past six months, especially it's been, I think you know what to do. That's all I'll say. I think you know what to do. And it's, there's two things happening at the same time. One, I, I believe it. I think they do know what to do. So I'm comfortable there. But even if they don't get it right, it's not that important to me. You know what I mean? Because we'll deal with that. Because there's, there's not only one right way to do anything, right? So what I, what's most important is that your top people, they trust that I trust them and, and vice versa. That's going to paint that picture. So, but it is a constant, constant relearning of that with each other. Even the highly successful, remember, they've got to get challenged too. Like you don't just take the foot off the pedal because they're, you know, let's dig deep. And when I'm having these goal sessions with, with the people on my leadership team, okay, what would make me uncomfortable to tell them? <laughs> then you're getting close to the right type of stuff and like the level of importance uh, to talk about, you know, because you can really get it at growth. And it's not about like me teaching them things. That's not what this is about. It's about us building on each other's strengths. In fact, as, as you know, and as anybody knows, hire people that can do your job. Hire people, you know, I, I want to make sure if I step out of here, things are great. That is the right type of leadership, especially for a nonprofit, really anywhere, but certainly in the nonprofit sector, you have to make sure that things are spread to the right place. So trust your people totally reinforce that you trust them and then just keep that cycle going. That's, that's been what I've been trying to focus on. Have you been through a season before where there was like a really big position, somebody that reported to you where they had a lot of trust and, you know, they were key to the organization, but then it didn't work or they didn't want it to work. You didn't, it, it just wasn't working out. Like, have you ever had kind of one of those moments where it's just kind of a big blow? Lots of, lots of those moments. So how do you, how have you learned? Cause they happen to everybody, but yeah. how have you learned how to like swallow that and call it for what it is and then start again? Like what, have, what have you learned regarding that specific kind of lesson? My favorite thing I heard, actually a person who sat in an interim role for me in the season, a guy named George Monger, who's a great, uh, he's a young guy, he's a great leader in this community. And he always says, one of the things I told to him was, you know, uh, slow to hire, quick to fire. <laughs> this idea about how long you need to take to find the right fits for your key people. I mean, anyone you talk to at the end of their career, will look back and tell you that that should have been their number one focus. Get the right people. Get rid of the people who aren't right quickly. Think how much time you waste trying to change people that don't change. And, um, you know, just spend that time to get the right person. Yeah, I mean, there's a perfect world scenario, Sam, where you come in and you got to pick your team and everybody. No one's ever had that experience unless it was a startup. That's never happened to anybody, especially something that's been around 70 years. So you have what you have. And if you're in the middle of a season, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, uh, if you don't like the person selling tickets, <laughs> you're going to be selling tickets if you get rid of them the next week. So you have to, you're making this decision of like how bad does it get. Obviously, there are some things that if they're cancerous to the organization, no matter how painful it is in the short term, you end it, you get out of it. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you're close to the people. This has happened. It's happened because 
it wasn't a good fit. It's happened because they weren't performing, which is really hard. You really like somebody, but it's not, they're just not getting the work done. You know, that's probably the hardest of all of them, I think. When someone's stealing pens, that's easy. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> just get them out of here. If they're stealing pens, they're stealing other things too. So it's slow to hire, quick to fire. And what that, if you really boil into that statement, what it's saying is just get the right people together. I had a coach my first year here, his name was Roland Vallier. He's a, he's a real pro in running symphonies. He had been an interim here in that, in that middle period. And he worked through with me this really wonderful approach to kind of sitting down with an employee that's kind of slipping. And you, you start with this thought. It kind of changes the mood. You just say, you know, before I do anything drastic, I just wanted to let you know that things aren't going well from my, my perspective, and I just want to see where you're at. And it kind of, I've done this so many times. It just opens the door for, I have something going on I haven't told you. Okay, we can work through that. I'm not in the right place. Okay, well, let's find a way to transition now to, I don't know what you mean. That person needs to be. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's been a helpful. I, I always will be faulted as a human being in giving people too much benefit of the doubt. I've had to come to terms with the fact that that's just part of me, right? That's just part of who I am, and I've had to embrace that. So there's going to be, it's always going to be a lot of tension around these conversations for me. But when I approach it that way, I've found that it, it ends up being kind of a freeing moment for both groups. I mean, in your mind, you're deciding, is this incompetence or is this insubordination, right? It's incompetence. You can get some training. You can fix it. If this is an insubordination. That's a different issue. Why are they doing this? Do they think they can get away with it? Yeah. You know, so you, you have to go down this long path. I encourage people, even though I have a degree in psychology, not to be psychologists. Make it a little more simpler and, uh, and just be honest with what the issue is because, you know, you're going to focus on these behaviors, but really it's that culture thing. You know, you, you don't believe this. You don't believe that we can solve our own problems or you wouldn't be doing this, right? And solving our own problems means we can trust you and your work. You understand that if you don't do good work, we can trust you, we can't do that. So you, you have to just root it all in that values conversation. And that's been something I've learned. So we actually spent a lot of time talking about that that value and we bring it up all the time you know in a business you know you have all these unknowns right you're running your business there's all kinds of what are the rules and things i mean in, in your business you had sam you know what are the laws around the work you do work requirements and hiring people and you have to determine do i have have i turned over too much of my success to unknowns because you have you're violating that first value that says you're in control so you have to you have to try to take control of that as much as possible that's something we'll always be on the cusp of because we don't own our own building. Like we don't own our own concert hall. So we're kind of at the will of what's going on. I mean, we've got a situation now where I don't know if the city of Memphis is going to open the Cannon Center back up. I don't know if they will. Um, okay. Well, what are we going to do? Do we just give up and throw our hands up because <laughs> we don't own it? No, of course not. We have plans. We, we try to, take as many of the question marks away as possible. So if you don't have that value, you don't make those decisions. What do you think gives you contentment about like this season or other seasons? Because just from what you're talking about, take the Cannon Center, for example, you don't know if that's going to open back up. You know that you're not quitting. You know that you believe in the success of the symphony. You know that your team, all the musicians, the board believes in the success. Even when 
things look just wild realistically for the rest of this year. Stuff is still probably going to be shut down and people, I'm not giving advice here. I'm just saying, you know, it's just now starting to register in people's minds. I feel like that until that potentially there's a vaccine, things might not normalize. But what gives you contentment to kind of just wake up each day, love your kids, love your wife, try to love your kids, you know, whatever, come in, tackle issues, deal with the unexpected, you know, have growth plans, adjust to them, et cetera. Like, how do you, how do you have contentment to kind of just keep charging forward with optimism and confidence amidst just so much unknown and ambiguity? There's got to be some sense of fulfillment, I would guess, that you feel by doing what you're doing. Well, we're having this conversation in the first month of the fiscal year. <laughs> Let's have this in the 11th month of the fiscal year. We'll see how it goes. But, you know, understanding your business. So Jim Collins, you know, wrote the book, Good to Great. He also wrote, it's actually on my desk behind me. It's called How the Mighty Fall. I see it. Looking good. Best book. It's the best book. It is a book that our leadership team read in January and February before any of this. And I had remembered it and I thought, hey, this would be, a, we, we do this with various books, you know, it's a fun thing to do, read through them together and try to take from it. What it does is it follows companies that did, it didn't work out and it creates these categories and the things that are happening. You know, you're keeping important information from people. You're reaching for things outside of your competency, you know, looking for salvation, you know, uh, all these types of things that clearly lead to demise and how you get out of it. And, and it really highlights this idea, really get to know your core central purpose. And our core central purpose is playing music, but it's actually connecting with people. Certainly. Okay. When you remembered that for us, we started to look at our list. Who are these people that allow our business to operate? They're, they're generous with their time and their money, their talent with us. And you realize it's actually a relatively small number of people. And you know what you do, Sam? You pick up the phone and you call them. We're not going to be able to play the concert season we want to play. What do you want to see? What do you want to do? And we'll share the ideas. Well, would you be there for us with your gift either way? Yes, they'll be there for you. So when we go through that list, you started to realize, hey, there's a path here. Now, it's way smaller than what we're used to. And we say, okay, we take all those things away that these people didn't say we needed to do this year. And you start to see we've carved out this about 65% existence. Now, it's not going to work long-term. It would be a total restructure if this was a, a forever arrangement. But this allows us to survive so we can thrive. You know, people like things that rhyme. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that it's bigger than that because in this time period, it's going to allow us to do some things that we wouldn't have been able to do. The best example is that I can reflect properly. You never get to slow down in an orchestra or in an opera or in a ballet because you're, you're doing a concert next weekend. You did a concert the weekend before. You're doing a concert the, the next month, and then you're planning the next season. Like normally right now in July, we are in final negotiations for arrangements, pieces of music, artists, venues for the 21-22 season. Well, okay. final arrangements, like we'll have all that stuff done in September, start putting marketing materials together. That's actually all ready to go at Christmas for, you can see how that cycle doesn't allow you to reflect properly. So here we got this chance to reflect and it's everything from cleaning. <laughs> we finally cleaned that room upstairs, you know, <laughs> um, to 
just looking deeply at a lot of these things. Well, what are we learning from the way we play music? What is the audience saying these various things? Well, we don't measure that. Well, I'd sure like to know. We realize we don't have any video footage. Well, we can do something about that. So we're, we're taking this time to get some competency around being able to capture video along with our audio to where when you have moments like this, which may become more and more normal, you have all this, all this footage. So we are, we're really focusing on what things can we be doing that allow us to be actually better when we come out of this. Things like these Zoom calls, I mean, people like to connect, right? So you can imagine a patron at home and a violinist up here talking through music that they love in the type of connection that's never allowed on stage and in the audience. So there are ways, if you, if you know what that core business is, which is music as a way to connect people and build this family of music lovers and, and how that can then help benefit, how can it support education, how can it support literacy development, then you can, you can really get an understanding of your business model. So just like any business, remember we're a business and a, and a mission-based thing. Know where the money comes from. <laughs> so we focus, we're focusing on now and have been on that key group of people that's gonna keep us open and allow us to thrive. So we see a path, we made a checklist of things we need to get done by September 15th. We're working on that checklist well, and we feel like if we get through that, we have created enough of a plan that we can work our plan for this next year and allow us to be able to then grow out of this. We're, things change, like if you can just look back from two months ago, just two months ago we thought we would be in recovery. Almost everybody did, especially when we started to see numbers go down. But you're starting to see the response back up, and logic will tell you that's going to go, you know, things are finally going to go back down. But it's just allowed us to, to really keep razor focused on those key constituents, but also the time to reflect and to be stronger. You know, it's an integrity issue. Like, how can you be internally stronger when we come out of this? Yeah. So I'll, be, I'll, I'll tell you the first thing I did, Sam. Because I understand, I grew up as a kid of a musician. I'm a beneficiary of white privilege. I will not deny that. But we did not have any money <laughs> going up. And I understand that being a, a musician is an underpaid, unless you're like, you know, Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an underpaid and underappreciated thing, and it's difficult for the fans. So one of the first things we realized was that our musicians had a lot of anxiety over the situation. They can't do what they do. You know, can you imagine you've played an instrument to be great at it, to perform for people eight hours a day for 30 years, and you can't do that anymore? You're not allowed to legally? It's devastating. And then anxiety. So we, call, we had a call almost immediately with the players, and we shared, we will pay your contracts. Doesn't matter if we're doing another concert or not. We're paying them all out for the rest of the year. Took a lot of work to be able to say that. We had to get the board together, the COVID task force. We had to do the numbers. We had made a path that said the way out of this is through philanthropy. So this group cares about the musicians, so do we. I mean, what else do we do if we don't have musicians or an orchestra? So we let them know that was happening, and it's just been a shift uh, of the way we, we can talk and work with each other. And now that's continuing because now we're, we didn't ever anticipate that we'd have them in a whole year maybe of no concerts, but we're, you know, we're looking at that, what that could look like. So we're committed to them. We're committed to this this idea that we can exist without performing on stage. Uh, and there, we have a trumpet player who's doing these series of recitals with the organist at his church. And I'm telling you, it's just the most beautiful thing. And it's never happened before. Online, watch it on Facebook Live. And what's his name? 
His name is Scott Moore. He's our principal trumpet player. It's On amazing. Facebook? Yeah, he's an amazing musician. He, he goes to Great St. Luke's Church in Midtown. He and the organists are, are playing his recitals. And it didn't happen before. You know, we, we, we never connected with people that way. Well, that's going to make us much more interesting to a wider population of people after this. We'll still play in the concert hall one day, but we'll also do these things as well. So we're really trying to learn from this, from this experience, to try to come out of it even better, even more useful to the community. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about February, March, when COVID really started to be taken more seriously amidst people here and in the United States? Like personally, I remember I was in Atlanta, I think, in early February, and people were wearing face masks. And I was like, what's going on here? This is ridiculous. You know, I was just ignorance, not even thinking that it would be where we're at today. So you, you talked about all this momentum that you had, and you talked about all the things that have happened over the last several years. You talked about the endowment, creating that, all the opportunities it's provided, key people, key relationships in the city that had been pitched before on it that passed or didn't work or, you know, unfortunate things happened in the past. But it was kind of a new season, a new phase of life. And so then you're continuing to build out the symphony, and I know it's been growing. So you had these plans. So A, can you talk a little bit about just dealing with COVID when it first happened? You've talked about what it's like to, to pivot and to change the course and to use it for good. But can you talk about what the emotions felt like initially? And then can you also talk about your plans, your optimism, your team's plan, musicians' plans for the growth and for the next level that y'all are going to take it to? once we get out of this season that we're in right now. Yeah. Well, it was, it was an interesting period of time for us and for everyone. There is a comforting piece of everyone being in it together. The symphony has a history of getting into crisis in good times and bad times. <laughs> there's a lot of times we've been in crisis alone, but to, to be in it together, there's a really great network of art, artistic groups. It's called the Cultural Coalition, but it's also associated with Arts Memphis. So we're all very close. And very early on, we started sharing what this is what's happening. The Orpheum will tell us what's going on. The Iris Orchestra will tell us what's going on. You know, the opera and all these various things. It, we were all shocked here and a little resistant. We were one of the first groups to close and make that decision. I'm very proud that we were there, though way later than probably we should have been. You know, we did a, we did a concert in late February uh, it was wonderful. We had two commissions. We recorded it. Uh, it was a great concert. Commissions like a new work that was written for us to be right. performed for the first time. So people are hearing new, new music. And I remember thinking it wasn't a very good crowd for the music we were playing. You can really predict it in an orchestra. You know, when you're playing Beethoven five, you're playing, the crowds really come. It's really interesting. It's like, oh, maybe there's something going on in the back of my mind. And then we did a, a really cool concert the next week, similar. It was that was March sixth, and then on March twelfth, Sam, we had a school concert at at Snowden Elementary, and it's it was a huge undertaking. The whole orchestra on in the middle of the big gym at Snowden, packed house. All of the students in the school were participating in the concert. It taken weeks of preparation, and I went. And it was really starting to be the buzz. And I, a lot of people were already uncomfortable. We had a rehearsal for the opera the next day. We had a pregnant violinist 
and I called our personnel manager and I said, she doesn't have to come to anything else. <laughs> well, no one has any idea what this effect this has on fetuses. I was thinking of all the Zika virus stuff. And I said, oh my gosh, we did like violinists share a music stand. So the, the, the two chairs that looking at one music stand, I called the personnel manager the night before and said, we've got to get a music stand for every player. So have the crew go get extra music stands and have the librarian go print extra music. And, you know, and I went to Snowden, I kind of walked around and we got together and we said, all right, we're canceling for the time being, we're canceling all activities. You're not going to have to worry about leave. Like if you've taken leave because you're uncomfortable, it won't count against you. We don't know what's going on with that. And then within about 10 days, we had made that decision that we, could survive the year which just ended and then we would pay the players and then we started digging into kind of all these COVID plans so it was very reactionary at the beginning um, which it was for everybody we were thinking at the beginning sam that we'd finish the season we'd come back and finish the concerts in may so you didn't cancel everything you just canceled the show you offer refunds and it keeps going on we had already sent out subscriptions for the new year you know so all these things have been filtering through in real time. And one of the things that was comforting that goes along with everyone being in this together, no one was sitting back and going, the symphony is going to lead the way <laughs> for the community. So we had the benefit of, of seeing what other people were doing and being part of this big network. And as long as we could kind of manage our own world, you know, I very early on in this and I didn't realize the visual but, you know, when you get on an airplane, the, the flight attendant, they come and they say, put on your own mask before helping someone else. Right. And it just it struck me as a nice, and the message I had to everyone in our circle was get your, get your family taken care of, get your house in order, get your stuff straight. If we stay whole and stay healthy, we will be of use to this community. If we don't, we're not of use to anybody. So let you know. Let's get our mask on. I didn't even think that I, you know, have so many masks. That, and, and <laughs> my kids are all wearing masks all the time. So it's just an interesting uh, change. But it's really been digging deep into that trust we have with each other. Keep in mind, a lot of these things. We read that book in February. I mean, it's got to be a serendipitous faith thing that we were preparing ourselves for these moments. And it's, it's a great lesson that as we're going through it, when you come out of this, you know, they say fix the roof while the sun is shining. So dig deep, fix these issues, get these issues straight while you can to where when these moments happen, you're prepared. It's not like that's a new message. Right. <laughs> Lord knows. So. What are you excited about once this passes and after the roof is fixed while the sun is shining? Well, I'm excited about while we're in this, I'm excited about the potential for creativity. I mean, the benefit we have of being a group of creative people. I'm the least creative person in our entire organization. <laughs> so that is, that is really fun. So they, they sit around the table, you come up with some really neat ideas. So there's a lot of music we're going to play next year that we would have never played in a season because we have to be smaller. So we're going to dig into all this, all this music that was written for smaller groups and odd groups. Well, we can do that. We don't have to put the whole orchestra on stage. We can have a group of 12 people. Or, you know. So that's very exciting. And things like these small performances, like I was telling you about the trumpet and the, and the organ, that should happen all the time. A after COVID, every Wednesday at noon, there should be a live stream of a sacred work played from one of these great church organs in Memphis. There's, a, there's an absolutely wonderful faith communities. 
you know, that's that's the thing the symphony can be doing. That's the capacity we have. And we never did it before because we were in this cycle and never allowed to reflect and challenge and be creative. So we've been given this gift to do it. So we're gonna we're gonna build it. And we will play again, we will sing again. That's the most depressing part by far, is we have a chorus. People love to sing and it's singing is by far the most dangerous part from spread of COVID and this whole thing. So getting back to singing will be very important. Yeah. Last question I have from a family perspective, what have you learned about dealing with everything that we've talked about today? And obviously the things that we haven't discussed, but how have you learned how to operate with so much ambiguity and have to react to so many different things, but then also what that looks like at home at nights or on the weekends or like when you're on vacation, like last week, what, what have you learned about that in such a unique career? Yeah, just the importance of, of the family and of us for each other. It starts with my wife, of course, we've been married almost 15 years and to, just to be able to support each other through this, it's just a much better way to live than trying to do it by yourself. <laughs> There's no question. And then just these hidden gifts, like, for several months in a row, we had lunch and dinner together every day around the table. I can't tell you the last time something like that happened. And we tried, but I have a job that performs at night and on weekends. So the whole weekends I'll be gone because we, you know, uh, for a concert on Saturday night, I need to be there at 5 p.m. I'll get home at 11. I didn't have to do that at all. It was fantastic. So this, this time we spent together, and I realized my kids were loving it. They're loving the whole thing. All this time they have with mom and dad, it's just the best. Like, sign me up. No, it wasn't all perfect. You know, school doesn't quite work well on an iPad. We're all learning there. But there were just hidden benefits there. And I'm so grateful to them for that. I mean, if you're in a relationship that was having problems, this has probably been a very difficult phase because it just exacerbates everything. But I happen to have a, a saint for a wife, so it has <laughs> been it's been wonderful. And I, my, I have a baby too. He was born on December nineteenth. So actually, the the day they called off her work was the day she was supposed to first go back. So she she didn't really ever go back to work after maternity leave. And so we just had all this time. I basically had all this time home. With, the, with my son. It's really great. So this is, a, this is a great benefit to have that time together and just the importance of that unit. Our, our family had to be the strongest it could be, not only for, our, for, it's for us, but then it helps everybody else too. When they see us make through it, when we are able to help other people, it, ha- it starts at the home. You got to be really, really have it strong there first. Yeah, man, this has been such a, just a great conversation. I mean, just a few things that I'm thinking of that we talked about, which we've talked about the personal side of a lot of the things that have gone on. But even from a strategic standpoint, you talked about when you took over as CEO and with the previous head of the board, looking at other organizations, you know, around the country, what was successful and then going after that. And then these key relationships, these key people in the city that through their financial generosity seems to create so much community growth and just progress and then the importance of classical music the way that you explained how classical music really drives music and art and you know within the city within all these different events and experiences that we get to benefit from but it's all within this ecosystem that you laid out and then some of the other things that you talked about with you with even your own staff with your board but how to 
build what that looks like to build a well-run organization. And I know it's not perfect or it's not over, but you know, it's been very insightful into that. And then to COVID and what it's like to have the whole, I guess, as you said, second half of the year shut down. And then how do you see the benefit in that? But then how do you deal with it? Honestly, I mean, we've talked about so many different things, but this has been a great conversation. Yeah. What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> Wide <laughs> open. I got some, at, yeah. I got some at 9 a.m. What you got? Yeah. Well, I say I appreciate it. And these uh, moments allow me to do the reflecting that I need to do. So uh, it's, I've, I've enjoyed it as well. So I appreciate everything you said. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at podcast.sampcoats.com. Have a great day. Okay.